let's go ahead and make our way in the Bibles, if you will, to 2 Peter chapter 3. And as I pray about where the Lord would have us go next on Sunday mornings, I thought maybe a couple of devotions before we get to our new series. Um, and we'll start off that today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for everything you've blessed us with in Jesus. Thank you for the worship this morning. Thank you for bringing us here, Lord, and gathering us together in person. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray, Lord, that your word would speak to our hearts this morning, and that, Father, we would, Father, conform our heart to your heart. And we ask this now in Jesus' name, amen. Second Peter chapter 3. And let's begin in verse 1. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and by the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord and our Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. And by the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved, by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one uh, day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is to one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Chuck Swindoll wrote in his commentary concerning this passage, he states this, Yes, critics have denied it, cynics have laughed at it, scholars have ignored it. Liberal theologians have explained it away, and fanatics have perverted it. Where is the promise of His coming? Many still shout sarcastically. The return of, our, of the Savior will continue to be attacked, misapplied, and denied. But there it stands, solid as a stone, soon to be fulfilled, ready to offer us hope and encouragement amidst despair and unbelief. As a Christian, the second coming of Jesus Christ is one of the most glorious promises of the New Testament. Unfortunately, since so much time has passed since His first coming, many have grown weary in the understanding and in the anticipation of His imminent return. Some have Cause that are, have interpreted that delay as his unfulfillment of the promise made to us that he therefore will never return. 
But Peter, writing his last letter here to us, wants to encourage us. He wants to state clearly that the promises of God will be fulfilled. Whatever God has promised, he is faithful to perform, and he will perform it. Jesus Christ will return. But many are asking, when will he return? Well, we don't know the day or the hour. I wish I could give that to you so you could put it on your calendar and prepare accordingly. But Peter also offers us an explanation of why God yet has not returned. And it's that explanation that I want to focus on this morning because I think it is so incredible. I don't know about you, but the older I get, I see the corruption continue to mount around me within our nation, within the world, the injustice, the suffering, the pain, and so forth. And I'm like, oh Lord, just come. Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. Okay, Lord, we're ready. Next Wednesday would be great, you know. I can get everything prepared and in order and you can come for your church, and uh, we'll be ready to go. You don't pack your bags because you can't take anything with you. And yet Peter tells us very clearly of why the Lord has not yet returned. He begins in verse 1 by reminding us of the very fact of our need to be reminded. The reason that we need to be reminded of what happens next and what God is capable of performing and what God will perform is the fact that we are now being discouraged by the voices that surround us telling us it's never going to happen. As Peter calls them scoffers, one who mocks and ridicules the idea of the second coming of Jesus Christ. You know, I don't know about you, maybe you've been in a conversation with somebody and you've talked about, look at everything that's happening around in our world from the nation of Israel to everything that's happening globally. We must be getting to the close to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And immediately you can see within their eyes that they have now just pictured a, a person walking back and forth with one of those, you know, billboard signs, repent for the end is near. They think you're crazy because it seems ludicrous that it's in such a technologically advanced society, an event like this could take place. And yet we know that we are getting one day closer each and every day to the blessed return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And for us as believers, we should be encouraged. But Peter, writing this last letter just prior to his death, wanted to remind those who follow Jesus Christ that God is not slack concerning His promises. And He does so very clearly, asking us in verse 2 to be mindful of these words which were spoken before by the holy prophets. Those are the prophets of the Old Testament, Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and so forth, but also reaffirmed and, and uh, of the commandments of us the apostles of the Lord, our Lord and Savior. Knowing this, and the reason for the reminder is found in the fact that scoffers will come in the last days. Now, scholars seem to be in agreement that this word will means that they already have arrived in Peter's time. And I believe that this is part of the false teaching that he alludes to in chapters 1 and 2 of Second Peter. 
but will continue until the Lord's return. There will always be those who deny the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and will mock those who believe in such things. They will ridicule us. They will think we are nuts for believing in such a thing. But these individuals are walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of His coming? Their attack is a direct attack upon the faithfulness and the truthfulness of God. He promised, and yet it has not yet occurred. Most scholars believe that 2 Peter was written somewhere between 67 and 68 A.D., so we're only about 38 years after, or I'm sorry, 35 years after the ascension of Jesus Christ. And already they're denying his return. They're already questioning it. They're already mocking the idea. And we're only 35 years since he ascended back into heaven to his father. We can only imagine that that mockery and that ridicule has intensified over the last 2,000 years. And because of that delay, many now, I think, are wrestling with the idea, maybe he's not going to return at all. Maybe he is, uh, uh, it is just figurative language, it's symbolic, it's some type of metaphor, but it can't be literal because if it was literal, he certainly would have returned by now. And you can understand their argument. And notice that Peter even alludes to that argument in verse 4. And saying, where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Everything's exactly the way it has been. Nothing's changed. God hasn't judged But Peter will address the fact that they purposely and willfully forget the certain facts of the history of God. Many don't understand that the last days actually began with the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, verse 17. Peter clearly tells us that the prophecy of Joel being fulfilled at that moment ushered in the beginning of the last days. So the last days could be considered every day since the ascension and the arrival of Jesus, uh, the Holy Spirit, upon the church until today, each and every day has gathered us and taken us one step closer to that return. But there are also passages that talk about the latter days, the days at the end of the end times, or the end days, meaning just prior to His return to this earth. And yet... The scoffing continues. We see a decline in the study of eschatology in churches across America. When I got saved in the 80s, it was the primary uh, subject that most churches were discussing. So 35 years later, I have to believe we're 35 years closer. But many today avoid the subject, number one, because they feel it's too controversial because of the level of scoffing and mocking that is out there in the, in the Christian community and also in the secular world, it's a subject that is often avoided. 
Some believe that the content of the book of Revelation cannot be understood or known, and that since things have continued as they have for the last 2,000 years, we don't know where we lie on that prophetic timeline before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the scoffers that we find Peter referring to were, un, were not unlike the scoffers of the Old Testament. Denying the, the, the author, I'm sorry, denying the actual authenticity of God's character due to the apparent lack of fulfillment upon his promises. Malachi writes that he was contending with this in Malachi 2.17, where Malachi writes and states, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, in what way have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. Meaning God's not dealing with it, so God must accept it. It must be permissible to God, because God would deal with it otherwise. And then, of course, they then go on to say, or, where is the God of justice? His apparent inactivity is, is leading them to draw the conclusion that he isn't there, he doesn't care, and he isn't acting upon the promises in which he has made to them. Jeremiah struggled with this very thing. In Jeremiah seventeen fifteen. Indeed, they say to me, where is the word of the Lord? Let it come now. When Jeremiah was telling them that they were on the brink of judgment, they kept denying it. And they're saying, Jeremiah, you keep saying it over and over again, but we don't see this uh, army from the north coming on against us. So where is it? Let it come if it's going to come. And you can hear the mockery, the scoffing in those sentences, in those words. But Peter tells us, as we continue on chapter 3, verses 5 through 7, notice that they willfully forget, purposely. They know better, and yet they forget. They choose to forget that by the word of God, the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. Wait a minute, Peter says. Don't you remember that the corruption and the evil on the world in the world was so great that the thoughts in the in the hearts and the minds of the people were consistently evil and God judged the entire world through a flood and used his uh, righteous instrument Noah to save those few to start all over again? How is it that you would deny the return of Jesus Christ for the purpose of judgment? When God has clearly demonstrated in the past that He will perform those things that He has promised to perform. I can only imagine what it was like for Noah during those years in which he was building the ark. I can't even fathom what he was going through. For they haven't, had, they haven't seen a vessel like that all the way up until that time, not being near any water, I can only imagine the head scratching that took place as people went by and said, oh, there goes Noah again. He's been doing this for years and years and years. And in each and every year that passed, it was another opportunity for people to repent and they chose not to. And yet they mocked Noah as he built that ark. And they criticized him and they ridiculed him all the way up until the time that it started raining. 
when we went down to the, uh, the Ark in Kentucky, I don't know if you know that that's where the Ark landed in Kentucky, uh, this whole thing about Mount Ararat, that's all uh, false. It's, it's in Kentucky, and they made a nice parking lot, and you could take a bus going right up to it. Uh, we went with a group from the church here, and it was a beautiful day when we arrived, and we got out of the bus, and we walked through the ark, and we were going through, and it was just a wonderful, wonderful time, and unfortunately, then the day came to an end, and as soon as we were all leaving, we all went, left the ark, and we started traveling back towards where the buses pick us up to take us back to the parking lot, these dark clouds rolled in. And it began to rain. And we all turned and looked back to the ark. Let us in! Let us in! You know. But God saved us with a bus and took us back to our car and everything was fine. And then we went swimming, so take it for that. But purposely forgetting, willfully forgetting the fact that God has judged in the manner in which he stated he would judge in the past, and yet they deny the fact that in his promise to do so going forward, they believe that he is inconsistent and incapable of keeping his promise. Notice in verse 7, But the heavens and the earth, which are now currently preserved by that same word, that same command, are reserved that word reserved in the greek means appointed time for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men there is a time coming where god will hold the world accountable for the sin and evil and corruption and injustice that has been put forward as one commentator wrote he said the present creation has been preserved awaiting a different type of judgment the world Uh, was destroyed by the word of God through the water, another judgment will occur by his word through fire, the destruction of the universe. And Peter later goes on in 2 Peter verses 11 through 13 to further describe this judgment. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, which, of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And this is the passage where we all get that famous phrase from, it's all going to burn in the end, you know. You know, I'm not so much concerned of global warming as I am about global melting, global, you know, dissolving. Those things concern me. Hey, if they want to warm it up here in Chicago during the winter a little bit, I'm all for it. I don't know about you. But Peter makes it abundantly clear that this judgment is coming and will come. But again, from the very uh, early on in man's history throughout the Old Testament, Man has always been questioning the timing of God. For in Ezekiel chapter 12, 27 through 28, Ezekiel writes, Son of man, look, the house of Israel is saying the vision that he sees is for many days from now. And he prophesies of times far off. Meaning it's not going to happen now. Therefore they say to them, Thus says the Lord God. 
None of my words will be postponed anymore. But the word in which I speak will be done, says God. You think it's a far off? It's, probably, it's closer than you think. Habakkuk had the same idea. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak, and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. So what Peter wants us to know is this, that if God says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Don't be deceived and persuaded by the voice of the mockery and the scoffers that are around you that would ridicule for the even embracing the idea of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Just because God has delayed doesn't mean that he isn't going to fulfill that in which he has promised to us. I don't know about you, but sometimes it's difficult walking by faith, trusting in the promises of God. You see, God tells us by the promises that he will do something, but he never adds an addendum that says how he will do it. You know, oh, Lord, you say you will provide for all of my needs according to your riches and grace. Well, how are you going to provide for all of my needs, Lord? How are you going to do that? Well, that's where the faith comes in. God says he will, but he doesn't necessarily tell us how he will do those things. And that's where the rub comes in. That's where the difficulty comes in. I mean, it would be wonderful to get up each and every morning, go to your email and check your email. Oh, it's from God, you know, and it has a priority sticker next to it. And here's what's going to happen today. And here's how my promises towards you. And here's how I'm going to fulfill them. And when you have needs coming up in the future, here's how I'm going to do those also. And we would say like, oh, that's fantastic. That's wonderful. No, God doesn't work that way. He just tells us that he will. And often it requires us to simply, by faith, wait on him. And you know, after 35 years, God has always been faithful to every one of his promises that he has ever made towards us. Sometimes it's not even close to the way I think it should be fulfilled. I always get a little kick out of praying with people, and not only do they tell God their need, but then they also go on to proceed to God. And God, this is how you can fulfill it. I just want to say, <laughs> oh, I hope, you, I hope it works that way for you. I really do. But it often doesn't. But this delay cannot be interpreted as inactivity. There's a purpose for the delay. And that's what Peter wants you and I to know this morning. That this delay has a purpose to it. And he gives us that purpose. Notice what he says in verse 8. He says, but beloved, speaking to we who are Christians, he says, do not forget this one thing. Now parallel that with the fact that those who are scoffing had willfully forgotten. He says, now you who are beloved by God, followers of Christ, Christians, he says, you remember and do not forget this one thing. He goes then on to state that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. From the very beginning of the early church, there have been those who try to find some kind of equation within this to determine when the Lord is going to return. 
I believe that Peter is simply reminding them of Psalm 90, verse 4. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes, and like a watch in the night. Basically, he's saying this, God's timeline is not our timeline. That's another qualm I have, right? I always know when it's perfect timing for God to act and to perform and to do. But God always has a different timeline. And what I can't argue with him about is the fact that his timeline is always perfect and mine is never perfect. I can't argue with him. God, you know, wouldn't it be so much better if you did it this way? Nope. I'm going to do it this way. I'm going to do it at this time. So why is God on a different timeline? He's explaining that time is, uh, doesn't work the same way for God who is in an eternal state rather than in our finite state. And he says in verse 9 that the Lord is not slack concerning His promises, meaning He is not forgetful. It is not that He is going to um, uh, renege on the promises that He has made to us as some count slackness. But notice what he says here, and this is what he wants us to remember also and more definitively. But God is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I don't know about you, but one of the most difficult aspects of the love of God towards me is his long-suffering. When I contemplate that, I can't even grasp that in my mind. His long-suffering, His patience, His love for me displayed in that way. I don't understand it. But yet it is His long-suffering that is delaying His return and therefore pronouncing judgment upon this world. And He's doing it for the purpose that He hopes and wills that all who will come to Him will come to Him. Notice what he says, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. When we were studying the book of Lamentations on uh, Wednesday evenings, we came to Lamentations chapter 3, verse 33, where it says that God was not willing in his judgment towards Israel, meaning it wasn't his preferred choice. He was hoping that the 40 years of preaching of Jeremiah would lead the nation of Israel back to repentance towards him, and therefore judgment wouldn't be necessary. It is not God's ideal to have people perish. And yet, though he is willing and wanting each and every individual to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, he still allows for our free will to accept or to reject the mercies of God through Christ. It's one of those dynamics in soteriology that whenever you adopt a single form of soteriology or a theological position, for example, if we were to uh, completely embrace a Calvinistic position on soteriology, then uh, the free will of man is diminished to the point of irrelevance. If I go to the other end, where it's the Arminianist side, then the sovereignty of God is challenged by the ultimate free will of the individual. I believe the Bible states very clearly in its tensions between the two that it is a mystery. That from the foundations of the world we have been elected for salvation by no means closes the door to anyone. 
As D.L. Moody put it, and he said it so simply, and it's one of the reasons I love D.L. Moody so much, he said it is like this. It's a door inviting someone to come in and to experience the salvation of Jesus Christ. And so they entered into the door, and then when the door closes behind them on the back of the door, it said, predestined from the foundations of the world. You see, God doesn't ask me to understand completely how he saves. He just wants me to know that he does save. And that it's my job to share the gospel with anyone who will listen. And people think that this is a new idea or it is new simply to the covenant that we are under in Christ, the new covenant. But let me show you the heart of God displayed for us in the book of Ezekiel, the Old Testament book. In Ezekiel 18.23, notice what God says. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God? And not that he should turn from his ways and live? A few verses further in Ezekiel 18, verse 32. For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. And if it wasn't clear enough, notice what Ezekiel says later in chapter 33, verse 11. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. For why should you die, O house of Israel? I think that clearly demonstrates that that's what God's desire is for them. But I'm also reminded of our Lord's words when he wept outside of Jerusalem after they rejected him. As he went out and went on top of the Mount of Olives and he's looking over the city of Jerusalem, he began to weep, wanting to gather them together under his wing. And yet he said, but you were unwilling. You didn't want it. I offered it to you. I invited you, but you didn't want it. And he wept over the nation of Israel because they turned from him. Now, I believe this is also consistent with Paul's understanding of salvation. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 7. He says, Therefore I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercession, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, and I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of Christ, the truth. That's beautiful to me. I'll leave the election up to God. As Moody went on to state, I believe in that same commentary, he said, God save the elect and elect some more. 
I don't fully understand it, but I trust God that anyone who calls out in the name of the Lord shall be saved. And I trust that simplistically. I don't need to know how God saves someone. I just need to know that He will save someone who cries out and calls to Him. Paul then went on to say, when he wrote to the Romans, a theological masterpiece to say the least, notice what he says in the midst of chapter 2. When he asks his readers, or do you despise the riches of his goodness, his forbearance and his long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? It's that long-suffering of God that we must not interpret as, you know, uh, faulting on the promises in which He has made to us. He's delaying for the purpose so each and every person can receive Christ. I am so glad that the rapture of the church didn't occur in 1985 because there was this wild, ridiculous 16-year-old in 1986 that needed to get saved. God's delay in judgment is for the purpose that He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If that is God's desire of His heart, should it not be the desire of our hearts? If we truly believe that the return of Jesus Christ is imminent, it should light a fire underneath us to get the gospel out to anybody who will listen, right? The study of eschatology is not for the purpose of crafting and learning all of the latest conspiracy theories that are offered on YouTube. It is for the purpose of, number one, knowing that God's Word is truly His Word. Number two, to purify ourselves in the hope of His return. Who, uh, number three, that we get the gospel out with urgency. That judgment is coming. That God is not slack concerning His promises. And that we know that we are closer than ever before to the return of Jesus Christ. We then should be laying our lives down as living sacrifices before the Lord and looking and preparing for those opportunities of evangelism when God presents them. Do you have a loved one who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ? If the Lord returned tomorrow for His church, would they be taken? Or would they be left behind, plunged into a seven-year period of tribulation? I don't wish that upon my worst enemy. If God did all that He could do to save us through Christ, Christ's suffering and the brutality in which He did on our behalf, and that God is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance, how much more should you and I who are recipients of that grace of God, be urgently looking for the opportunities to share the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your children who do not know the Lord. We know that judgment is coming. I think that is evident. We don't know the day or the hour. But I do believe we have a responsibility to adapt the heart of God at this moment and be actively looking for opportunities to share the gospel with those who will listen. I want to give you six things in closing, if I may. Evangelism isn't easy today. It's more difficult than I think it has been in a long time, but more needed now than ever before. 
So let me give you six things that you can do to prepare yourself for this mission. Number one, you need to pray for a heart for the lost. You need to pray for a heart for the lost. If this is God's heart towards His creation to people who do not know Him, then it should be our heart towards them also. It is easy to see them as the enemy and to write them off. But let us understand that if it wasn't for someone who took the risk with us, we may not be sitting here in the salvation that we enjoy in Jesus Christ, in the sense that someone took a risk on our behalf to share the gospel with us. Let us pray as a church that we develop a burden for the loss that is so great that we can't deny it. That as Jesus began, we shall continue to go and seek and to save those who are lost. Number two, let us begin to pray right now that the eyes and the hearts would be open to the gospel in those opportunities that God presents for us. Let's pray that God, when we do encounter these opportunities to share the gospel with people, let us be prayerfully already prepared that God's Spirit, who is working in conjunction with us, would open the hearts and the minds to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. And number three, let us prepare for those opportunities. A lot of people shy away from evangelism because they feel like they're ill-equipped to share the gospel. Do you know it's sometimes the simplest forms of evangelism that are the most effective? And that may be begin, I should say, with your story. How did you come to saving faith in Jesus Christ? Your testimony can be one of the most powerful weapons in your evangelistic endeavors. People love to listen, you know, to a good a story that is true. And just share with them how you came to saving faith. Well, you may be saying, well, you know, my testimony isn't really anything. You know, I was six. Uh, I heard Jesus loves me. I got saved and I've been saved ever since. Nobody's going to be really influenced by that. You know what I found? That God often brings us across the path of people who need to hear that very type of story that you can provide for them to respond to the gospel. Maybe if I would share my testimony, they would run away screaming you know. But your testimony is exactly what they need to hear. So prepare. And there's really a twofold side to the gospel. Number one, it's the bad news first. You have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and that sin has separated you from God for all eternity. You gotta tell them the bad news before they can truly appreciate the good news. And that, that gulf that was created by your sin cannot be bridged by you, but has been bridged by Jesus Christ. It can be that simple in presentation. But prepare for those opportunities that God will provide. But we can pray for, the heart of the, for a heart for the lost. We can pray that their eyes would be open. We can prepare for those opportunities. But number four, if we don't seek those opportunities and choose to avoid them, it doesn't make any difference, does it? So look, seek those opportunities each and every day. It could be somebody you're standing next to at the grocery store. It could be somebody you're going through a drive-thru and you start witnessing. And the, the people can wait for their happy meals behind you. Just do what you need to do. 
you know, we find that people are very receptive. Dean and I just recently went to a restaurant, a local restaurant, and we were sharing with the young girl, and she left and came back, and she actually pulled up a chair and sat down with us. It was amazing. But look for the opportunities that God will provide you each and every day, and don't avoid them, but take those opportunities as open doors. Number five, be patient. Evangelism today is a marathon, not a sprint. Sometimes it takes a long time. Sometimes you are just one step of the process of sowing the seed, watering the seed, and so forth. But be patient. Be patient with people. This may be all new to them. You may have to get past all of these preconceived notions that they have about Christianity. You may need to give them an opportunity to see your life, to see if you truly believe what you say you believe to be true. If you talk about the love of God, they want to know if you're going to love as God loves, you know, as God loves. So be patient. Be patient. You may simply be one step in a process in which God is bringing about. But when that's all said and done, let me close it with this, number six. Always remember that it is a work of the Lord. It is a work of the Lord. We cannot push anybody into heaven as much as we would like to. We can't do it. It's something that they freely need to repent and believe and receive Christ as their Savior. It's a work of God in them ultimately. But God has given us His Word. God has given us His heart. God has given us the Holy Spirit to accomplish that work in the life and in the lives of those in whom we share the gospel with. But let, us, let me remind you again, if I may. Beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance.